Betsy Toich is an author and activist from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In 2015, she published a book titled 100 Under 100, 100 Tools for Empowering Global Women, which serves as a reference on simple, low-cost tools that are helping women improve their lives around the world. I couldn't recall any other book on poverty that was as unique as Betsy's, so I talked with her about what inspired her to write it, and about how folks like you and me can get involved. I'm Josh Morgan. My conversation with Betsy is coming up next on The Plural of You, the podcast about people helping people. According to data from economist Max Roser, about 9 out of every 20 people on the planet lived on $1.90 or less per day in 1981, which wasn't that long ago. In 2015, that was down to about 2 out of every 20. That's an awe-inspiring thing. I mean, that's billions of people, with a B, whose lives have been improved. But there are groups of us who still struggle with poverty more often than others, and this has been the case throughout history. In the context of Betsy's work, women represent the largest group. Part of why poverty is on the decline worldwide is because women have been given access to tools that can help them work more efficiently, or start businesses, and invent new tools for others. Something that I've learned in my interactions with Betsy is that those of us in quote-unquote developed countries often think of global poverty as a burden on us, like that it's up to us to solve these problems for the people who are affected, and then we're supposed to pass those solutions down to them. However, Betsy pointed out to me that this isn't the whole story. People in developing countries, particularly women, are just as industrious as those in wealthier countries, and have created many of the tools that Betsy's featured in her book. A major problem has been helping entrepreneurs and inventors in developing countries engage with those in other developing countries. That's changed in the last few decades thanks to the internet and cell phones and, in this case, increased pressure for gender equality. Even though global poverty is the lowest that it's ever been, there's still a ton of work to do. Part of the overarching solution will require collaboration between leaders and with people on what they need, then connecting them with others in similar circumstances. Instead of telling them what they should do and then half-expecting results. Betty's book chronicles many different variants of this approach. And what I love about it personally is that it provides introductions to many projects and products that I'd never heard about. And it presents opportunities to get involved with each of them. It's also a testament to human ingenuity. With lots of stories about people finding things that we take for granted, like trash, and turning them into life-changing objects. We didn't get into it much, but Betsy's involved with several organizations, so I'm humbled that she made time to talk with me. Here's Betsy Teutsch, the author of 100 Under 100. So I'm really blown away by this book you've written. Would you mind talking about it a little bit? The book grew out of my excitement when I went looking to see how women were involved in technological solutions for poverty alleviation. That sounds like gobbledygook, but basically women are living in extreme poverty around the world. We're talking about maybe a billion women, and they are living without infrastructures that you or I take for granted. Uh, No electricity, no running water, no sanitation, very weak health systems where they live, hardly any functioning school systems very little transportation available. So how do we get these women out of poverty? They're already working incredibly hard. So there are all kinds of 
designs and delivery systems and tools, but it's hard to get them to the women who need to use them to improve their lives. So that was my curiosity, like what's out there? And I found such inspiring women who themselves are highly trained engineers from very elite institutions like you know, Stanford and MIT, and they have jumped into this field and are helping to build it. It's called humanitarian engineering. They sometimes call it tech for good or development technology. And it's something like how you figure out how a solar light can make a really huge difference in a family's life. And then how do you sell the solar light? How do you get it to the family that needs it? And then what is the next step? So by doing a lot of research, I discovered pretty quickly on that this was a really rich field and very underreported on, I'd say. We tend to be focused on bad news more than good news, and I found a lot of great news. Mm-hmm. Now, what was your first exposure to these types of issues? I worked for an organization called Green Microfinance. And while I knew, I guess my first exposure was to microfinance, which has been around really for a whole generation or more. Muhammad Yunus won the Nobel Prize for furthering the concept. He was not actually the only originator, but he, being an economist from Bangladesh, had an audience and a vocabulary and a commitment to trying it. He was frustrated as a young economist when he looked around near the university where he taught in Bangladesh. He saw just such impoverished women, just in dire poverty. And he was thinking, what good is economics if we can't really get these women what they need? And they're working so hard. So he lent them personally small amounts of money, and they turned out to be great credit risks. Uh, The really poor are generally unbanked, so they can't get credit the way you or I might. They can't get a credit card, and they don't have any property or deeds to anything, so they have no collateral. And that's the same in the United States for low-income people. It's really hard to borrow money. That's why people have these incredibly high payday loans. The loan shark was how they were keeping afloat. By lending small amounts of money at a much lower interest rate, they were many of them were able to work their way out of extreme poverty. And they founded the Grameen Bank. It's a generation later, and there's a huge debate as to whether or not microfinance actually helps women get out of poverty, or if it's a stopgap measure. There are so many variables, it's really hard to tell. But everybody agrees that financial services are crucial for the poor. So that was my first exposure, and I came in being very interested in sustainability and green design, primarily focused in my own community, really focused on my own house how to green my life more. And I worked for this organization called Green Microfinance, and they meshed the two concepts, microfinance for the developing world and clean green technology that was taking off. This was about seven or eight years ago. So here's the deal, Josh. If you have one solar panel on my house, that might power one appliance. It would not power my whole household. I still would need many solar panels, and I would need it to be very sunny. (laughs) But one solar panel for a a home in the developing world has a really huge impact because people don't have any electricity at all. So when you can access even the small amount of electricity that a solar panel puts out, then you really have a new day for the extremely poor. 
what people use a solar panel for in the developing world is lighting. And that means that they can, and now that we have LED lights, the solar charge goes really, really far. And they also are charging cell phones on them. And that has turned out to be a big driver of demand in the developing world because people have crappy kerosene lamps. They don't like them, but they have some light, but they absolutely have to charge their cell phones. Cell phones are a real lifeline for people. It's been very transformed. So that was my first exposure. When I looked at the cell, at the cell phones, there's a much lower percentage of ownership and participation by women than men. And also the solar industry in the developing world, the whole supply chain is pretty male dominated. So it seemed to me that if the women stand to benefit the most, they're the ones that are staying at home and that are in the home. And if they are going to get solar, they really need to be exposed to it. They need to understand it. They need to lobby their husbands for it, shame their husbands into it, whatever needs to happen to get them solar. So that was my initial entry point. At what point did you decide to write a book about all of these things? Well, I was really trying to avoid writing a book. (laughs) It's a big undertaking. I started out as a blogger and a communications director for that organization I mentioned, Green Microfinance. So I love blogging and sort of telling the story and having a nice photograph that really illustrates the points of the story and having a narrative. So that was very familiar to me. So I decided that I would wanted to do something in this area of technology mashing up with women, both the women who are designers of technology and these kind of idealistic engineers that go to the developing world and sit down and figure out how to help people do things better. But I didn't really think that I was going to write about it per se as a book. I was also interested in the end users and how what the impact of this uh, these tools would be. You know, if a woman gets a better stove, does it really change her life? Uh, Pinterest was a new social media website at the time. This was about three years ago. You had to get an invitation to join Pinterest. And I got intrigued because Pinterest is a way to catalog images. So if you have a story with a picture that you read somewhere, usually what sticks in my mind is the picture. I remember the image and then I have to back end and try to remember what the story was about. And you, I, so I started to keep track of these interesting stories by the photographs. Pretty soon, I fell so in love with the images that I just had more and more and more. And eventually, I had to start subdividing them into water and sanitation and energy and farming. I found an amazing amount going on. About half of the world's small agricultural farmers are female. And when you hear the word, you know, developing world farmer, you just automatically imagine a male. And about half of them are women. So that's astounding. So we need a lot of pictures to really get that point across. There is an immense amount happening in public health, and that has a lot of engineering and science as well as really low-tech combined. So I just had so many images, and in almost every image that there was a woman doing the job, a woman scientist, a woman farmer, a woman construction worker, they were just all doing it. And that suddenly hit me that having a book that was illustrated with images of women doing the work would really hit home to people that we're not trying to just come up with handouts to people. 
what women need is better tools so that their work will be more productive. And seeing women at work is a really compelling narrative. So I embarked on this book, really led by the photographs. The photography that I was able to locate is just amazing, really beautiful and vibrant. And every single woman in the book is doing something. They are really working hard. And I think we all can be inspired to be of service to people that are working so hard with so little resource. Just as an aside, do you know if Pinterest is aware of this project? Well, I have tried to contact them, but they don't really have any easy entry point. And I did in the in the introduction to the book, I made a point of thanking Pinterest and on my website, I thank them. But I have never found anybody at Pinterest. I think I emailed somebody that seemed like they might be interested and I've never heard back. So if anybody's out there listening and you happen to work for Pinterest, I'd love to help you tell your story. So in going back to some of the innovations that you've seen, what are some of the projects that kind of stick out on your mind? Well, there is an immense amount going on, as I mentioned, in solar. Solar panels of the kind that go on a rooftop and also like a little charging panel like you would find on a small appliance have gotten more and more efficient and cheaper and cheaper. A solar lantern, which replaces a kerosene lantern, now costs about $10, maybe even less. So anything solar is very exciting. I was quite astounded by the new kinds of contraceptives that are available. So that's a public health issue as well as a health issue, but also a poverty issue. Because when women and men, for that matter, don't have access to family planning, they have very big families that it's hard to provide for and the planet can't sustain the kind of population growth we have. So there is something called long-lasting injectable contraceptives. Through the Gates Foundation and a number of other initiatives, you can get a long-lasting silicone implant. It's the size of a matchstick, maybe like a needle, and it goes under the woman's arm and her upper inside arm. It's very discreet. No one needs to know it's there. I've seen something like that, yeah. And it lasts for five years. And the, the negotiated price for um, women in the developing world in the countries that participate is $9 for five years. And what that means is that she only needs to go to the clinic to have it injected and it doesn't require a physician. They train women and then these health workers, that's what they do all day long. So they're very good at it. Quite often, it's a real ordeal for women to get to a clinic. And if they get there, the clinic might not have stock, they might not have staff, it might be closed. So this way, you've really taken a lot of the strain off of the health system. It's, it's completely reversible. It just needs to be removed and fertility returns. So that is something that I think we need to get the story out more. So that was a big surprise. I was surprised at some of the innovations that are building on really tried and true technologies that just haven't been widely disseminated. And not everybody wants to talk about diarrhea, but if you're talking about public health in the developing world, Hundreds of thousands of children die of diarrhea every year, which is completely preventable. And they pick up diarrheal diseases from untreated water. And often they're malnourished anyway, so an infection goes through them really fast. And what what actually makes diarrhea fatal is dehydration. 
And about 50 years ago, they came up with something called oral rehydration therapy. It was to treat cholera. And it's the same problem where you die. People were dying similarly from Ebola. You just, you become so dehydrated. And it's simply clean water, a little bit of sugar, and a little bit of salt. It has to be the exact proportion. But once you have that serum, it sort of teases the body. It confuses the body into retaining the water rather than expelling it. In some countries in the world, this is just standard treatment. Like if uh, in the United States, if your kid gets sick, you just go to the CVS and you buy a bottle of this stuff. It has brand names. When my kids were little, it was called Pedialyte. I'm sure there are many others on the market. And if you look, they just have uh, sodium chloride and glucose. That's water and sugar. In countries like Zambia, for example, the rate of treatment was 1%, even though we've had this really cheap treatment for 50 years. So why do people not know about it? And it's because it was treated as medicine. And medicine is not sold typically at the little neighborhood village kiosk. They would have to go to a clinic to get it. And the same problem I just mentioned, if they got themselves to a clinic, the clinic might not be open or it might not have any stock or it might charge them and they don't have enough money to pay for it. So somebody had the bright idea. His name is Simon Barry. He said, if Coca-Cola can get to the ends of the earth with their product, we should be able to get oral rehydration salts where they need to be, which is in the village. So he essentially took this simple treatment and packaged it in kind of a bright packet with a little drinking cup in it so that they could have the right amount of water and then like little measurements. The packet of salt and sugar was pre-mixed and you just drop it into the little cup. It sells, they got the price down through all kinds of negotiating with all kinds of different suppliers. And it has been astoundingly effective. Basically what they turned it into was an over-the-counter item that you just buy when you go buy whatever you buy at your little neighborhood place. So the kiosk vendor makes a couple of cents on each sale and is happy to have it in the store because it brings women in because everybody's child is sick eventually and they all have to come into a store or her store. So it's been a, a really interesting supply chain innovation it's and packaging and design. It's not really, they. we've had the product all along. We've had the solution. We just didn't know how to get the solution where it needs to go. So Cola Life has done a, an immense amount of data, which is all open source and it's wonderful reading at their uh, website, which is just colalife.org. Uh, they don't have anything officially to do with Coca-Cola. They just kind of use their Coca-Cola supply chain. And it turned out that nobody cared about Coca-Cola. They just, once they got into the same place where, they, where Coca-Cola was sold, the vendors were happy to come and pick up their product too. It, it reminds me of a story that I read about a few months ago, like somewhere in the developing world, there was a problem with iron deficiency. So you're probably talking about Lucky Ironfish. That's a yes. book too. Yeah, Lucky Ironfish is a very simple, low-tech solution, although they've studied it and tweaked it. But it's a fish made out of cast iron, and it's, a, it's about the size of a paperweight, maybe like three inches. I, I have them here. And um, when you put it in water and boil it, it excretes detectable but tiny uh, amounts of iron. And for iron deficient families, which is almost everybody in Asia, because it's a rice-based diet, it raises their iron levels so they're no longer anemic after a couple of months of using it as directed. 
it's really clever. You can put it in soup or what they recommend is actually just boiling a little water with the iron fish in it. And then that's the drinking water for the day. I guess you have to boil it so that it gets to a hot enough temperature to excrete it. But that's also a solution that is worldwide. It's a worldwide problem. It isn't people are not just they're anemic in the United States, too. So it would work just as well in the United States. It's also a great design story because their first go round, these social businesses use the model like in Silicon Valley startups where you keep iterating and keep testing your product and seeing what people like. So their first go round, they just had a lump of wrought iron, not wrought, of of, um, cast iron, cast iron. And it was nobody really liked it. They didn't. It was so aesthetically unappealing. They couldn't imagine just using it. So they went back to the drawing board and they came up with the shape of a fish, which is a good luck symbol in Cambodia, where they are based. It's a Canadian company, but they are based in they do their work in Cambodia. And that was widely accepted because fish are perceived as good luck. And people like the idea of putting this cute little fish in their soup pot. How are you active in these causes now, aside from writing the book? Um, It's a great question. I feel like they're all kind of my children. So I follow them all on Twitter and Facebook. And I keep uh, on my Facebook page, which is just, if you're at Facebook, you just look for 100 under $100. When when one of them posts that they've gotten an award or some new version of their product, I keep updating and keep posting it on Facebook. So people that have read the book can keep learning more about the companies. Um, some of them I've been in touch with. And one of them, one of the ideas that I wanted to do something local. I live in Philadelphia. We don't have a lot. We have poverty, but the solutions in my book are really designed for the developing world, not for you know rich world poverty, which is a very intractable and much more expensive to address. But I wanted to do something local. So one of the tools in the book is a really clever way to build in the developing world when you're when you have a lot of garbage. It's called an ecoladrio in Spanish, and that means Eco brick. So what they do is they take a plastic bottle, which in the developing world would not be recycled. I just got back from Guatemala and everywhere you go, you just see piles of plastic trash. It's just overwhelming. And I imagine that when you live in Guatemala, you don't really think that's out of the ordinary. But it was I couldn't take my eyes off all this garbage. So and that's because there's no sanitation system in place, correct? Yeah, they just don't have any waste management. So if they want to if they want to get rid of trash, they have to burn it. And that's, of course, not environmentally smart. And it's wasting all the assets of the trash. And you need people assigned to collecting it, which they don't seem to have. So they take the gar in some places they it was invented in Guatemala actually. They take a big plastic bottle and they fill it with trash. It has to be inorganic trash or it will decompose in the bottle. And then once they fill it and really compact the plastic, it becomes a, a construction brick. And they've built schools out of it. They you can build walls, you can build most anything. And it's earthquake resistant and it has really good insulation factors. So it's a very clever solution because it's taking what was a scourge and making it upcycling it into something usable. It's less expensive to build with these than it is with cinder block or whatever. 
some of the places that we were in were so remote that I could really see that trying to bring a load of cinder block in would be incredibly costly. And cinder block is, or any brick needs to be fired, and that has a high carbon footprint, whereas this has no carbon footprint because you're just taking waste. I decided that it would be fun to do a project like that in my home community. And I do have a school that has taken up this idea and that these fifth graders are going around and collecting bottles and filling them up with trash from their school and I presume from home. And they're going to build a gaga court with it, which is sort of like a raised volleyball curve wall. But it's fun because they're getting their families involved and it's, it's very educational. It's environmental education. And it's really, cre- I am making these bricks myself and I cannot, I'm, I'm kind of an eco nut. So I buy very carefully to begin with, not to buy things with too much packaging. I cannot believe how much plastic waste that I couldn't recycle before I can now put in my bottles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so stay tuned on that one. I hope it takes off in the United States. It's very labor intensive, but it's a great solution. And the school's located in Philadelphia? Yeah, it's called Plymouth Meeting Friends School. Interesting. That'll be fun. And I, I'd like to see more. Now when I walk around the neighborhood, I sometimes pick up trash on the ground because I think, oh, that's, that's perfect for my bottles. Well, that'd be a good incentive to do that, yeah. So what is it about these issues that resonates with you? Like, what's, what's compelled you to be involved? What's compelled me to be involved, I think, is two things. One is the age and stage that I'm at in life. I'm a grandmother and I have a business, but it's gotten to the point where I'm I'm not retired, but I'm not working full time either. I don't need to anymore, which is great. So I really wanted to, I, fe- I felt like I had one big project in me still. I wanted to do something that had some bigger impact. So this felt like Helping 2 billion people, 2 billion women seemed really important. The other piece of it is that I love solutions. I love design solutions. And I just am so wowed by the, that we actually know how to help people improve their lives. I'm not going to say that we're going to necessarily people get, get people out of poverty, but we know how to prevent children dying from these horrible diseases. We know how to save women's lives. We know how to get rid of kerosene and improve the ecology of the world. Kerosene is a fossil fuel. I mean, we know all these things. So I really wanted to be part of getting the idea out to people that we can do it. We can make a really big difference. And a small amount of money goes really far when you're working with problems that have a $10 solution. What can listeners do to help you and the people that you serve? Well, I love that question. Each of the 100 entries in the book, the book is arranged by sector, and there are 100 write-ups of solutions. But I also have an icon at the bottom of the page, which simply says Y-O-U, you. And down there, I have ideas for reader engagement. So it could be anything from some of them have volunteer programs for adult professionals, internships for younger people. Some of them are really looking for advocates, like, for example, breastfeeding. There's a class you can take online that helps you become a watchdog for the formula industry, which undermines breastfeeding routinely, especially in the developing world. And they'll actually train you and you can be watching the media and play a real hand. 
There are courses you can take online. Say you love to bicycle, you could do a bikeathon that raises money to provide bicycles, which are one of the hundred tools. So I think I, I designed the book in a way that if there's just a topic that you are excited about, you can see yourself getting involved. I laid out a pretty straightforward pathway. If you're traveling to the developing world, there's an index in the back with the suggestions of one of the organizations that I wrote about. It's called Global Grins. And if you are willing to be an emissary, they will send you 100 toothbrushes to take to where you're visiting in the developing world because nice. tooth decay is a huge problem for kids, especially because the junk food diet has gotten there ahead of toothbrushing. So, hundreds of ways to be involved. Nobody has the excuse that they can't think of something to do if they've looked at this book. I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, where can we find the book? Well, the book is available on my website. Most people go straight to Amazon. Um, so you just Google 100 under 100. My website is 100under100.org. The book is available as a digital book with about 400 links, but it's also available as a hard copy book. And it really looks like a coffee table book. So I do go places and I see that people leave it out and sort of look through it to get inspired. It looks almost like a art book because of all the rich photography, all the it's full color. So it's also a really great gift. I think people from a lot of different backgrounds find it very inspiring. Yeah. Like I told you when we spoke before, I, I think it's a beautiful book. Um, I was impressed with how it was all put together and you really seem like, you know what you're talking about when I flip through the pages. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, most books about solutions are really promoting one solution because they're generally put out by the source of that solution. So I thought that I could be kind of a honest broker here because some of the solutions don't have, they're not really complete solutions. If any of these problems could really be solved with a silver bullet, we would have done it. So I, I also raise what challenges are. I think it's important for people to know what the pitfalls might be. That's a good point. So I laid it out as objectively as possible, and I'm still a total Pollyanna. I believe in all these things. <laughs> now, where can we follow you online? Online, if you're a tweeter, I'm at Betsy Teutsch, which is spelled T-E-U-T-S-C-H. And you can follow my blog by subscribing to it at the website, or probably the easiest is to go to Facebook. And it's Facebook slash 100 under 100 and like it. And then every time I post something, it pops up. It's been really fun to start seeing people all over the world following it. Right. Yeah. And I imagine that's really gratifying, too. Is there anything I haven't asked that you'd like to talk about? Well, I think I want to just close by saying that I really want to thank all the women that came up with all these solutions that are working so hard in the field while I sit at my computer and write about them. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> they're really out there literally doing the heavy lifting. So let's see what we can do to help. Anything else? I think we're good. Thanks a lot. This is the Plural of You. I'm Josh Morgan, and the show's website is pluralofyou.org. That's all for now. Thank you for being kind today. Take care. <laughs>